And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is the Dean of Arts and Letters of Grove City College, Dr. David Ayers. He's also a professor in the Department of Sociology. Uh, Dr. Ayers, thank you for joining us today. Sure, happy to be here. You know, our subject today is the Christian home, the Christian family. And uh, Dr. Ayers, I probably like yourself, have a great concern for our nation. A major aspect of this is our homes. I did a little looking online before our, you know, our discussion today, and I, I found some statistics regarding children living with one parent, a mother, in the home. And the, the numbers have been rising steadily over the years, and we're somewhere around 24.7 million children now live in a home uh, without the physical presence of a father. And, and there's many more where dads are physically present, but they're emotionally absent. And, you know, I think uh, a lot of the problems we have in our nation are tied not only to the loss of Christianity, but the associated characteristic of the, the destruction of our homes and falling apart of our homes. You've done a lot of lecturing on this. You're writing a book about it. Could you get us started about the Christian home and maybe maybe the biblical definition of a family uh, to begin with? Well, when I first started teaching marriage and family at the college level, Back in, I think it was 19, I think I taught my first class in spring of 1987. When we reached the, we would reach a point in the lecture pretty early in the course where we dealt with how do you define marriage and how do you define family. And I told students then, I said, we're going to spend a lot more time on this than you think we should. I mean, you, you think I'm basically supposed to give you a definition of each of these things and then we go on to important stuff. But what I'm telling you, and this is in 87, is that that question, how do you define marriage and how do you define family, is actually one of the most important questions we're facing today. It's going to become increasingly controversial, and it's in fact one of the most important things that we have to deal with here. And so then I really would get into the detail of it and talk about different definitions for different purposes and so forth. And, you know, reality over the last, oh, I guess now we're going on close to 30 years, has abundantly verified, I think, that observation. Now, to me, marriage is, is, is really always been defined pretty well uh, in the Orthodox Christian understandings. Um, there's never been any real serious disagreement between Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant on this. You know, they vary or they disagree over things like the degree to which marriage is a sacrament, for example, at least for Christians who engage in it. Um, Catholics say it is. Uh, Protestants say it's not. But the bottom line is, is that marriage involves one man and one woman who've made a commitment to be together for life, that that commitment involves a sexual relationship, and that sexual relationship is not an arbitrary one. It's, it's in fact, the act of sexual intercourse, to the point where if, if a marriage is not consummated through sexual intercourse, then we, in fact, say that the marriage has never taken place. And legally, by the way, it's, it's annullable, with the annulment being a statement that a true marriage has never taken place. Mm -hmm. So marriage is a committed relationship, it's a lifelong relationship, it's a monogamous relationship, it's a relationship between a man and a woman entered into freely. Uh, forced marriages are not true marriages in the biblical sense. And it's, it's ultimately a sexual relationship, and by sexual relationship we mean a relationship that, it, that is bonded uh, through uh, sexual intercourse. Um, a family is when children are added to that union. 
uh, either through adoption or through uh, birth. And then variants of the family are when children are added to a union that's in fact not bonded by marriage. Um, and we, we always basically would qualify those types of families by indicating that in some sense there's something less than ideal going on there. That's helpful. It's almost shocking that we have to go over the definitions, and yet they're so sorely needed. How long does it take the kids in your classroom to kind of get their arms around the biblical notion of a family and, and a marriage? <laughs> well, it's really difficult. I mean, for for some of them, it's like, why are we even talking about this? I mean, this is so obvious that it doesn't need to be said until we really parse it out. One thing I like to talk to, to, to students about is how we've separated three things that were always supposed to be uh, united. We, we've separated sex, marriage, and children. So when we talk about, well, we've separated sex from marriage, the typical thing that people think about is that we've made premarital sex okay, um, which is true um, to a staggering extent. But it's also true that we, um, that for example, so-called gay marriage or homosexual marriage is, is in fact, by all historical understandings, the separation of sex from marriage, because in fact, two women and two men can't actually engage in sex in anything like a biblical definition of the word. There is n never any one flesh union. It's physically impossible. Mm -hmm. And so, in that sense, students are oftentimes staggered. They, they've never really thought about it that way. Um, They've never really thought about the fact that, um, that the separation of sex from marriage w would also have that application as well. That essentially, when Bruce and Richard want the, want the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to recognize their union as a marriage, we want to say that it's equivalent, but it's actually not, because there's something critically missing that we've understood for thousands of years is supposed to be present in any marriage, and that is the act of sexual intercourse, the one flesh coming together. It, can't, it cannot happen. No. So I think when, when they really begin to parse it out, they realize that, that by kind of tampering with something this basic that everybody took for granted, we've in a sense kind of shattered things, and we've kind of created, at least in terms of our culture, a permanent disjuncture between sex, marriage, and children, in which all three of those things basically are now going in three different directions in a hundred different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In your definition of marriage, you also included a, an important concept, and that is that it's lifelong. There's many families that, that eventually break up. The statistic I saw was this. Uh, among children who were part of the so-called post-war generation, about 87, 80, 88% grew up with two biological parents married to each other, and today it's only like 68% that, that spend their entire childhood in an intact family. And... Um, that's that spells a lot of trouble for a lot of kids. Well, that may be actually even an optimistic estimate. Mm. Um, if if we look at cohabitation, um, if we look at out of wedlock birth rates. So, for example, when Dan, what, he later became senator from New York, but a really prominent sociologist, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was sounding an alarm in the late 1960s that the African American out of wedlock birth rate had reached. 25%. Mm. You know, one out of four black children born in America was born out of wedlock. And the the firestorm that ensued was so horrible that social scientists were afraid to go near that for decades. Uh, yeah. They still talk about that. Now that rate is 70%. Mm -hmm. uh, the overall rate's over 40%. It, mm. it rides before, between 41 and 43% in recent years. Mm. And so... 
in that case, you know, we're dealing with a situation in which, um, if in fact those those out of wedlock pregnancy rates involve involve cohabiting couples, most of those cohabiting couples will break up. Oh yeah, the, the overwhelming majority of them will break up, and if they go on and get married, the chances are that marriage will end in divorce. Mm. So we've created an unbelievably unstable situation for children in this country, and we've kind of expected that children are just going to kind of be happy as long as the adults are happy. And, and, and in fact, that, that is oftentimes overtly said. Hmm. So, you know, if mommy leaves daddy because daddy's squelching her individuality, as long as mommy's happy, uh, the, kids will, the kids will probably go through some temporary disruption, but ultimately they'll be fine. And that, that's just not true. Mm. So I, I think the big victims in terms of a lot of the changes in, in marriage and family structure over the last half a century, the, the victims have been children. And I tell students all the time, those are the ones that my heart actually goes out to the most because they're the, they're the one party that doesn't get to choose. Yeah, so true. This is imposed on them, and then we somehow expect them to adjust and make it work. When, we're, when they're being deprived of the ideal, the ideal conditions for their healthy development are being deprived of them, not by, not by accidents of, of nature and living in a fallen world, not because their father died of cancer or a heart attack while they were still young, uh, not because of poverty, but because of the willful decisions of the adults that are supposed to be taking care of them. I wonder if it's somewhat affected also by the training that the previous generations have had, let's say the schools that they went to, what they were being taught. Um, you know, God was pretty much pulled out of the schools since the early 60s, and um, I think there's an effect there. Uh, there's, a, there's a ripple effect on these, on these children growing up now becoming um, fathers and mothers. Well, we certainly let the school systems go out of whack, and, and you know, even in some circles, for example, my Roman Catholic friends are oftentimes very discouraged at what passes for Catholic education in a lot of Catholic high schools. Some are very good, but some are just as secular and just as kind of aggressively on board with things like a divorce or a gay agenda as any public school could ever be. Mm. Um, at the same time, I always go back ultimately, and, and I know this I know this has to be a lot more nuanced than this in, in some ways, but ultimately... The parents are responsible for the upbringing of their children, and if, if their children are in schools that are terrible, ultimately they bear responsibility for that. Sure. And to, to the extent that I see parents fighting back and trying to address uh, and confront some of what's going, some of the negative things that are going on, um, then that that's fine. And, and then to the extent that they're also trying to offset it at home by good solid instruction in the home where they're actually opening up the things that the, that the children have dealt with that day in school, finding out what they're being taught, and, and, and talking to them about the things that they're being told by their friends, by their peers, by their teachers. Um, you know, I, under, I understand that, but ultimately, um, I'm in Grove City, Pennsylvania. We have an elected school board. If our school system is horrible, yeah, there, there's some things that we ultimately can't control. There's regulations and things that we have to live within. And those regulations apply even to things like policies towards homosexuality and things like that. But for the most part, ultimately, we bear the responsibility for what happens in those schools. Yeah. I'm thinking about families that opt to train their children at home. Um, my wife and I did that. The bulk of the work was on my wife, certainly, as I was out you know, working during the day. It was... It was hard, but it was it was really good. Um, the kids, I think, um, grew up 
knowing Christ and knowing the Lord and knowing his ways. And it seems like, you know, going back to definitions, it seems like our, our current school system, the, the public school system, by definition, God is is not allowed in the discussion. I, I'm more Vantillian, I guess. I, I think the very foundation of knowledge is just, is cut away when, when you do that. I think you're right, and and the it's it's a kind of a thorny issue in a way. So, for example, my wife and I, except for kind of brief periods of time that we had our children in local Christian school, which which is very good. Um, our our kids have been homeschooled. I've got six children. Um, my oldest was born in 1985. My youngest was born in 2001. We're actually still actively, you know, involved in that. Um, the uh, so some of our kids really have loved it. Some of them have have rebelled a little bit against it. But ultimately, we've seen really good fruit uh, from that decision. At the same time, I wouldn't want to cast stones at really solid folks that I know that have made other decisions uh, oftentimes yes. for really compelling reasons. Um, but part of the issue, though, is that if I was and, and I know this is probably runs contrary to how a lot of Christians think, but um, if if I'm a Muslim. And my children are, or let's say I'm Hindu or atheist or Buddhist, and my kids are in a local public school. Um, I really don't want any kind of Christian indoctrination in that school. Right. And so, if I wouldn't do that to them, then I wouldn't uh, want them to do that to me. Totally understand. Yeah. And none of us should really want our children adopted into a secular humanistic mindset. Which, when they talk about neutrality, it never really is neutrality. It's always some kind of secular humanistic mindset right. in which in which some of these faiths are being attacked so the orthodox jews the orthodox protestant believers seriously conservative roman catholics are all having their viewpoints challenged you know for six to eight hours a day in these public schools in many different levels so to me as radical as it sounds privatization of the school system is the best way to go because then it allows parents to make their those choices. Oh yes. If, if they want their children in a secular school, they can do that. If they want their children in a Protestant evangelical school, they can do that because in a sense, to ask to ask a, a Muslim neighbor to pay taxes to have the Grove City High School indoctrinate their child in Christianity isn't isn't really right either. But to eliminate religious discussions, robust discussions, to make it illegal for kids to pray at school or to have Bible studies at school, that's ridiculous. Mm. So my view on that's a little bit more nuanced, but it, but actually I think the best solution runs to some kind of privatization. No, I appreciate your view, and I, I agree with it. So you're writing a book, and um, tell us a little bit more about what kind of stuff you're going to put in your book. Well... What I've tried to do with that is that I, I'm approaching things. First of all, I'm a I'm an evangelical Protestant of of Reformed or Calvinist convictions. Um, I, I grew up Roman Catholic, and I was in a very serious Roman Catholic environment. I was in a Catholic church. I went to Catholic schools, so I'm very familiar with the Roman Catholic views on a lot of these things. And so I'm trying to take basically sound doctrine and lay it out in each major area of of marriage. Uh, at the same time, and, and, and in some sense, talking about what everyone always knew. But combined to that is two other things. One is, is, is a rigorous empirical social science background, which even before I started teaching at a Christian college in 1986, before that I was active in doing research in what we would call moral majority religious right issues in Washington, 
back in the earlier 1980s. And so, and since I've taught marriage and family continuously since then, I've basically kept up on the research and data in just about every area of marriage, divorce rates, cohabitation, uh, gay marriage, uh, uh, out of wedlock, out of wedlock pregnancies, dating and courtship, all these kinds of things. So not only tracking kind of what the church is saying about these things and has said about these things historically, but also what we know from empirical social science research about these matters. And then combining that with a kind of a robust social history, particularly social history having to do with classic Western understandings and practices. So, for example, what, what did the Puritans believe about courtship? Uh, what did the Puritans believe about child rearing? Um, you know, this kind of thing. And trying to basically pull them all together and creating a basic, very general handbook to every aspect of marriage, starting with what is marriage and what is it supposed to do, because that's essentially the foundational thing. We, we can't talk about what a good marriage is if we don't understand what it is and what it's supposed to do. A good marriage is a marriage that fits God's definition of marriage and is attempting to accomplish the functions or ends of marriage that God has himself established. So then, once I've established that foundation, I look at everything against that foundation. So, dating and courtship practices, are these dating and courtship practices likely to lead young men and women to formulate good marriages that, that do what God wants those marriages to do, that fit them as individuals? Are, are these practices designed to facilitate or discourage fornication? You know, are, are dating and courtship practices encouraging people to break God's law with regards to sexuality? Or are they affirming and helping to support God's laws on sexuality? This kind of thing. So we start with the foundation, what's God's design, and then look at each aspect of it. And then try to identify common problems and practice and execution that are basically causing trouble for the church. I've, I haven't given up on our culture, but my, my concern is for the church to be the church and to act like the church in terms of our marriages and families, um, and, and to begin basically living up as it, it, in a fallen world, given that we're human beings, uh, but living up to our own ideals. Um, and um, I think increasingly, I think it was Russell Moore in his recent book Onward, which I just finished, who said, family values used to link us to the larger culture. Standing for traditional family values used to link us to the moral majority of our culture. Now it actually make, and now, now it's actually in opposition to them and it's yes. making us their enemy. Yes. Um, in fact, a lot of people look at traditional family values as bigoted, harmful, destructive, hateful. And yet, at this point then, we have to live as the church. We should have marriages that exemplify God's ideal for marriage and, and ultimately point back to the fact that, that at the very beginning, uh, God established marriage as the very first human institution. And he did it with, with people in the garden before the fall. And right from the very beginning, that marriage was a, a earthly symbol or picture of his relationship with his people. Mm. So as, as, as Christ is to the church, the husband is to the wife, and this Paul said is a great mystery. And everything really flows from that. Today I'm talking with Dr. David Ayers. He's the Dean of Arts and Letters, Grove City College. I'm thinking also, there's a lot of listeners that say, oh, this is this sounds wonderful, but I'm I'm in a broken mess right now. I'm I'm hearing all this and boy, I would sure wish that I had made a few right decisions twenty years ago, but I'm all messed up now. Um it's too big a question to ask what do you do, but maybe a couple of pointers for 
maybe a couple cases that comes to your mind, Dr. Ayers. Someone, let's say, that's living in, I don't know, Newburgh, New York. <laughs> All kinds of crime on the streets, drugs, uh, broken home. And just a couple of steps they could take in the right direction towards mending the situation they're in. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a firm advocate of, of, first of all, compassion and kindness and humility. The, uh, you know, we're, we're approaching a broken mess, and that broken mess is partly, if I'm thinking in terms of the church, as the church. And, right. I, and I would apply this, especially in American context, whether we're talking about the Roman Catholic or the conservative-believing Protestant churches, it's in some sense our mess. And, it, and it's a mess that's inside our churches, not just outside. Hmm. So starting with that kind of humility and completely getting rid of any kind of pride or arrogance or anything like that, but with real kind of a lateral compassion, I want to come along beside you, is start where you are. So, for example, when I, I, I was involved in a wonderful, wonderful church called the Bronx Household of Faith, which is still active. Um, really a difficult area of the Bronx, a lot of broken homes in that area. The vast majority of children are being born out of wedlock. Drug addiction, weapons, you know, openly out on the tables, terrible abuse uh, at kids, very, you know, just an awful environment. And, and uh, yet they've been faithful in that environment for over 40 years without compromising biblical standards, but with really coming along people laterally. So, for example, you're divorced. You're alienated from your children. You have a hostile relationship with your ex-wife. There's been two women in between her and the woman you now have. And, um, and now suddenly you've come to Christ. And, and you're, you're looking at the scriptures and what it requires and saying, you know, what do I do now? Well, you start where you are. And you start with the requirements of the scriptures that you can fulfill from the place that you're currently at. So... You're going to try to build bridges and, and have a relationship with your kids. You're going to try to the extent that it's possible for you to begin trying to provide some financial support and help for them. If you've wronged your ex-wife, you are going to ask for her forgiveness. You're going to confess those things. You're going to start where you're at and work from there and just be very grateful every day that you serve such a wonderful God. Because mm -hmm. that's really all he wants. Yeah. And and these little steps, um, they I don't mean to say they're little. I mean to say they're their incremental steps um, should not be discouraging because you're you're moving in the right direction and doing the right thing. And in that sense, then you have credibility because when people say, you know, why are you why are you you know um, why are you uh, down on gay marriage? I mean, look at your own life. You know, how could you say that the way you've lived is any worse? Yeah. Than what these people are doing. In fact, it it may it may any better. In fact, it may be clearly worse. And, and the answer to that is, you're right. I'm a broken man, and I've messed up very badly. But mm. here's what I'm doing to try to address that by God's grace. And you, by God's grace, can also begin addressing where you're at. Mm. I mean, our church is going to have to. You know, the, the Christian church in the next twenty years is going to have to be dealing with some really really tough things. You know, it's not just. Not just a cohabiting couple that wants to get married and, and already has a couple of kids and, and, and you're trying to figure out how to cope and deal with that relationship um, or, or thrice-divorced people and trying to figure out whether to treat their current marriage as valid, which have always been thorny issues. But, you know, you know what are we going to do with, with a lesbian who comes to the Lord and repents and is married and has already had two children with a partner yes. through artificial insemination or adoption? I mean, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, we're going to have to start from some very tough places. And it, it's going to continue to get harder and harder and harder. And um, it, unless we're really firmly grounded in our core principles held with compassion, humility, and understanding, we're not going to be equipped to deal with it. Because, you know, the fact is the culture around us has decided basically, you know, Grace Slick and Jefferson Airplane have won. If it feels good, do it. Mm. But the fact is, is that we know that the fallout from that is going to be horrible. And in 20 years, they're going to have, we're going to be dealing with some serious hangover. Mm. And what I'm hoping is that there, there is a, a faithful church who, who have not ever backed down from the truth, but have always held it with humility, kindness, and compassion, ready to reach out to them and help them start where they are, moving towards where they need to be. Amen. Today I've been talking with Dr. David Ayers. He is... Dean of Arts and Letters, Grove City College. And we are out of time already, Dr. Ayers. It really went quickly. If someone would like to follow up and learn more about your school or your upcoming book, is there a web address that they can go to? Sure, they can go to www.gcc.edu. And from that place, they can pretty much get anywhere they need to go. Okay, gcc.edu. And Dr. Ayers, um, I'd love to know when this book of yours comes out. I will let you know. Maybe we could talk again then. I would love that. Thank you for joining us, and um, may the Lord bless you, dear brother, as, as you labor there at Grove City. God's richest blessings for you too, Dan, and, and thanks for having me. Dear listener, this uh, episode is up on our website. Check it out. We're found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. Please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. May the life we live forever bring you honor. May the love we share together always glorify your name. As we come before you, Lord, with hearts united, here in your presence now, Lord. will always dwell within our home. We pray your peace will always dwell within our home. We pray your peace within our home. We pray your peace. We pray your peace within our Peace within us.